All right, y'all, this is The Takeaway, and I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. March is Women's History Month, so today we're revisiting a couple of conversations I had with two very inspirational, history-making women. First up, Professor Anita Hill. Now, I want to note that this conversation took place in 2021, before Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson was confirmed as a Supreme Court justice. All right. Let's take a listen. Telling the world is the most difficult experience of my life, but it is very close to having to live through the experience that occasioned this meeting. That was Professor Anita Hill in 1991. 30 years ago this month, Professor Hill faced the excruciating experience of testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Hill's testimony came after Senate investigators contacted her as part of the vetting process for Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas. The investigators asked her about her experiences working with Thomas, and she told them about the improper conduct, harassment, and vile language he'd subjected her to in the workplace. The Judiciary Committee then called her to testify, and she did so somewhat reluctantly, but believing that it was her duty as an American citizen. And this was the kind of questioning she was subjected to by the committee. What was the most embarrassing of all the incidences that you have alleged? Professor Hill, you said that you took it to mean that Judge Thomas wanted to have sex with you, but... In fact, he never did ask you to have sex, correct? I've got to determine what your motivation might be. Are you a scorned woman? After her testimony, Thomas angrily denied the allegations. But there were several additional witnesses who stood at the ready to corroborate Hill's allegations and to testify to their own experiences of suffering workplace harassment by Clarence Thomas. The committee, chaired by then-Senator Joe Biden, never called those witnesses. And despite Hill's courage, clarity, and credibility, Thomas was confirmed to the court. The vote was the narrowest margin of confirmation for a justice in a century. But this moment, it was neither the beginning nor the end of the story for Anita Hill. The youngest of 13 children born to loving, devout, and dedicated parents in Oklahoma, Hill was already an accomplished legal scholar before her 1991 testimony. And in the three decades since that moment, Anita Hill has become a catalyst for change and a warrior in the battle for gender equity. She's authored a new book, Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. And she joins me to discuss it. Professor Anita Hill, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be with you today. It's been 30 years since you were called before the Senate Judiciary Committee to testify to your experiences working with then Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas. I wonder, as you look back across the past three decades, if the country feels more equitable today. I get a feeling uh, today that we are moving in a right direction. Uh, That doesn't mean there isn't resistance to that movement. But I think the movement is now much more engaged and has a better feeling of empowerment than ever before. I think we're better informed. We, we have so many things on our side 
including a new generation of activists and activism. You wrote um, in the new book that at first you thought the struggle to end gender violence was going to be a marathon, but then you came to see it as a relay. Can you expand on that relay metaphor a bit? I'm at least four decades away from that experience and that feeling. I moved from thinking it was a sprint to thinking about the journey as a marathon or the race as a marathon. And now I realize that it is a relay where every generation does their part. And then eventually they hand the baton to someone else. And we hope that every leg of the relay increases our chances of succeeding. And yet you also write in a very careful way about this notion of generational change. And you warn us that... um, that you can't simply believe that old ideas will die out and that the young will show up, um, you know, more progressive, more equitable, more open. And in fact, you write some very painful stories of what adolescents are experiencing, the abuse, the bullying, that sometimes even ends in these young people taking their own lives. Can you talk to us about how this relay works um, if it's not just about, oh, don't worry, the next generation will do it better? Oh, the next generation should have the burden of doing it better. That burden should be shared by every generation. You know, one of the things that I've learned to do is to sort of think about the problem in three different ways or three different categories. The first is to think about the behavior that is happening. And I've heard from survivors and victims about the terrible behavior that they experience. And I do chronicle some of that with regard to behavior experienced by very young people, elementary and secondary school children. But there are two other aspects of the problem, and that's the cultural issues, the the responses that people get to when they bring complaints about uh, bad behavior, being told that you know, what they're, they're, they're talking about isn't that bad and they should just get over it and move on or ignore it. And that message gets repeated over and over. The cultural responses also include victim blaming and shaming. Uh, our generation can't keep giving that message to children because what we're doing is we are grooming them to accept bad experiences, to accept abuse. And we're grooming the, the persons who, who, who might be behaving badly to believe that their behavior is acceptable. The third way that I think it's important for us to look at this and the reason that I really believe that we just can't count on culture and cultural evolution is that these kinds of messages that deny harm and uh, deny behavior altogether. Like, there are people who still insist that sexual harassment isn't such a big problem after all, or sexual assault or rape isn't as frequent as it truly is, or intimate partner violence doesn't really happen to the people we know. There's this denial and dismissal that gets built into the systems that victims go to, to try to get their problems resolved. Those things will not go away unless we look at our systems, examine them, criticize them, understand how they are in fact 
complicit in the problem. You write about being asked the question um, by a parent, how can I prepare my daughter um, for college so that um, she doesn't allow herself to become a victim um, of sexual harassment and sexual assault? And I thought the way that you sort of walked through um, the the troubling nature of that framework um, was really valuable for um, explaining exactly what you've just said, right? That it's kind of built in even to those of us who in a moment like that are are trying to be helpful and yet to say, how do I prepare her so she doesn't allow herself to become a victim? Sad reality is that we know that young women going to college, one in four of them will experience sexual misconduct, including assault and touchings and gropings and coercion. What we should be doing is telling Uh, the leaders of our colleges and universities, that it is their responsibility to provide a safe environment and to set up the right systems so that when something does happen, they can be heard. Universities really have not stepped up to provide the systems that will allow victims to have a place to complain to have a system that will get to the truth so that there can be some accounting for bad behavior. The other thing though, is that we don't spend enough time on prevention. What you have to be doing all along is undoing those bad messages that people have gotten. If we want people to report into a system, we have to take into account that perhaps many of them for years have been told that there's nothing that can be done about this problem. We're talking with Professor Anita Hill. We're talking about her new book, Believing Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. Let's go back in time a bit. Can you talk about Lillian Miles Lewis, who she was, and how she inspired your current work? Well, Lillian Miles Lewis is the, was the wife of John Lewis. She became a friend of mine after the hearings when I spoke at Spelman in February of 1992, just a few months after the hearing. She came to visit with me at Spelman. I think she came there to tell me about how important it was for me as an African-American woman to use the platform that I would have, uh, having testified before the nation, to use that platform to bring voice to the issue of sexual harassment. This had not been the focus of your work as a law professor before 1991. It had not been the focus of your work per se. I mean, certainly part of it at, at the EEOC I'm wondering, on this 30-year journey that you've been on, have you ever regretted deciding so fully to use your voice and your platform to shift your legal brilliance, your public persona, towards addressing these questions of gender violence? I have not regretted, and you're absolutely right. This was not where I started my journey. And I do credit Lillian Miles Lewis for giving me the courage really to even 
think about, even consider that I might be able to make a, a unique contribution. So no, I don't regret it. She is one of the people that I dedicate the book to because had it not been for her in that conversation, I don't think that I would have seen the full opportunity that I had and, and how I could ultimately use my skills um, and my training and my experiences to bring a different kind of message in, and in a different way. You know what else was truly, truly compelling are the letters and mm. messages and you know emails now that I receive from people who are survivors or victims of a whole variety of what I'm calling gender-based violence. And they wanted to know what we needed to do so that what had happened to them didn't happen to others. I really had to expand my own thinking beyond court decisions about how we were going to move because I had to recognize the human aspect of what was happening to us. Now, Professor Hill, um, because I knew our interview was coming up, I have spoken with many of the guests here on The Takeaway, and I've asked them if they have questions for you. Um, and so I have a few, I pulled a few of those questions, and I thought I would play those. Um, we'll just do them one at a time and um, see what else um, we learn here. So I want to start with Dr. Monique Morris, who is CEO of Grantmakers for Girls of Color. And I also would ask her, um, what she thinks about how to communicate with girls, Black girls especially, about the power of their voice when people doubt them. How, where do they find spirit? What would she say to them in, in terms of finding their power to, to stand when the world doubts their, their truth? The power comes from within. It, it, it can't be, you can't rely on other people to give you that power that you have to dig deep inside of who you are and trust in your own authenticity and fortitude and really draw from that to affirm. You, you really have to start with affirming yourself. And that's, I think, where we have to teach girls that they are valuable and that what they have to say and what they do matters. And it matters not only for themselves, but for others as well. We also have a question from Dr. Monica McLemore, who is Associate Professor of Family Healthcare Nursing at the University of California, San Francisco. How would she reimagine the structures that are necessary for us to really address sexual harassment in the workplace that will allow us to have sustainable accountability for these issues, as well as a way to better center survivors of sexual harassment, sexual assault, and discrimination in the workplace? Well, we've got to really think about the balance of power in our, our institutions. And, and, and so specifically, what we have now are systems that put the entire burden of solving their problem on the individual who is, is alleging abuse. 
that should be shifted because the responsibility for creating safe workplaces has to start with the people who control those workplaces. So there needs to be a shift in the way of thinking. We require people to come forward, file a complaint, um, give you every detail, be convincing. And instead, what should be going on in our institutions is leaderships that really do clear assessments of the likelihood of this behavior, the frequency of this behavior in their own workplaces. And so the burden really shifts to them to, uh, to start to clean up and to prevent this behavior. One of the ways that we can prevent sexual harassment and sexual assault is to start with the many, what we call microaggressions uh, and the kinds of bullying and sort of gender harassment that isn't sexual. We can start with eliminating those behaviors that haven't reached the level to a formal EEOC complaint, but that feed into worse behaviors and more egregious behaviors. Uh, if we don't tolerate those, if we, if we make sure that everyone knows that we're not going to tolerate bullying and gender harassment and microaggressions, then the message is clear that anything worse is never going to be tolerated. So I think those are a couple of ways that we, we can do that. In other words, managers, CEOs, must take a proactive position in addressing these problems before they rise to the level of a lawsuit. I want to thank you for a gift that you gave me when we spoke um, about five years ago in, in 2016 for um, an Essence um, article. And, and you asked this um, extraordinary question that I have not stopped asking for the uh, since that moment five years ago. You, you said, let me ask this very basic question. What if the Senate had actually taken me seriously? So you didn't say, what if they believed me? Or you just said, what, what if they actually took me seriously as a, as a citizen speaking to her government? And I, I have reflected on this over and over again. And of course, during the Senate confirmation hearings for now, Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh, I'm wondering, in your estimation, if you think the U.S. Senate took Christine Blasey Ford seriously? I think, unfortunately, they did not take her seriously. I honestly believe that they did believe her, but they didn't take it seriously. They didn't take what she says happened to her seriously. And had they done so, even if they didn't have a system in place before she testified, if they had taken her seriously, if the chair of that committee had taken her seriously, we would have a process in place today so that her situation, 2018, my situation, 1991, would never be repeated again. All right, y'all, we have to take a break. More of this conversation in just... I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour 
wherever you listen to podcasts. Just a moment. We're back with more of my conversation from October of 2021 with Professor Anita Hill. I do want to ask you about your family. Um, You write um, both about the the health um, of your husband and partner. You also write about um, your remaining siblings. You're the youngest of 12. Um, So I just want to ask about them because I know they're critically important to you. And um, the COVID year and a half has been tough. So how is everybody doing? Well, I'm the youngest of 13. So that's 12 siblings. Siblings. Yes, they're 12 siblings. And people got that. Often, because uh, I, I, I do want to claim that 13th position. Um, <laughs> since the hearing, of course, we've lost my parents. I've lost three brothers. Excuse me, I'm sorry. I've lost four brothers. One died during the pandemic last year. Uh, but we're still very strong together. We're a family. And that has been everything to me on this journey, honestly. In conversations with recent guests on The Takeaway, we've also been asking them if they had a question to pose to Professor Hill. And they did. But many of them also had one thing to say. I'd like to thank Professor Anita Hill for her courage when she was derided and and mocked. Just a resounding thank you, right? I just have a tremendous amount of gratitude for her ability, her courageousness, standing up and showing us how to advocate, not just for the truth, but for ourselves. I am a great admirer of Professor Hill and just what she went through, you know, was just completely, completely unacceptable. Um, And I'm a big fan of her work. For Anita Hill, I would say simply thank you for using your voice, for holding your ground, for continuing to have an incredible career, you know, after the debacle. You were right. Also, I would say to Anita Hill, you were right. I hope that everybody can recognize how right you were. Thank you for what you did fighting patriarchy for all women. I would want to give thanks. As a child, I was watching the hearings unfold. I just want to express gratitude for her standing in the space and being unapologetic in affirming her lived experience in a way that demonstrated for me that that was possible. Anita Hill, one of the most important moments of my life, and I think I speak for many of the Essence editors, was really meeting you, embracing you, and giving you an opportunity to speak to the millions of women and some men who we serve. And I think we said this to you, if not, I want to say that you are just such a mighty combination of tenderness and surety and toughness. And that we, there was never a moment when aware women doubted what you were saying or aware men. We knew that you were telling the truth. And we thank you for your bravery, for your courage. It took courage to stand before the world as you did. And it just gladdens my heart to see you have elevated, having elevated your life and that you're, you know, just out there doing magnificent things. So God bless you for standing strong for the truth. Those were the voices of award-winning filmmaker Dream Hampton, president of Planned Parenthood, Alexis McGill-Johnson, professor of nursing, Monica McLemore, 
Professor of Communication, Natalie Hopkinson, CEO of Grantmakers for Girls of Color, Monique Morris, and Editor-in-Chief Emerita of Essence, Susan L. Taylor. And I had one more question for Professor Hill from Lupe Rodriguez. She's the executive director of the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice. I think the question would be, how do you keep going after so much? What keeps you motivated and and moving forward in in the fight for justice? I was at an event at um, a Votech High School, and it was sort of an open forum in the cafeteria, and this young man Uh, came up to the mic and he said to me, how does it feel to know you've changed the world? Hmm. And at the time, I didn't really, hadn't really thought of myself as changing the world. But to have this young person come to me and say to me that I can change the world or that maybe I've changed his world is enough to keep me motivated. It's enough to keep me going, even at times when things seem hopeless. There's always hope. There's always hope. And there's always a generation behind us and a generation ahead of us that really wants change to happen. And they want all of us to be a part of it. I asked Professor Hill about President Joe Biden. In her book, she writes quite frankly about elected officials who were involved in the 1991 Senate confirmation hearing. President Joe Biden was, at the time, the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. In my last conversation with Professor Hill, which was a 2016 interview for Essence, I was stunned to learn that Biden hadn't reached out to offer an apology or make amends. But that now has changed. Uh, He has reached out to me and he has apologized for the harm that I experienced because of that hearing and because of the way it was conducted and because certain witnesses who could corroborate because they had their own experiences that were similar were not called. But what I am looking for now is a, is an, a recognition and an acknowledgement uh, that that hearing in 1991 did not only injure me, but it injured survivors and victims and their supporters and families all across the country. It injured people who believe that our federal government can do better and that that this is a serious problem. I want acknowledgement that when you look at the prevalence, the extremely high prevalence and toxic nature of what is going on in our elementary schools and our universities and private institutions, in our military, then you understand that this is a a national crisis that we need to address. It's a crisis. It's an embarrassment, I believe, on this country that professes to believe in gender equality. And that if we don't take that seriously, if we don't acknowledge it, and then commit resources to eliminating or at least starting to reduce it, then we are going to pass this on to another generation. And, and, and people will continue to be harmed as well our entire country. I had one last question about 1991. 
I will never forget that one of Professor Hill's colleagues, Professor Joel Paul of American University, had the opportunity to testify. I cannot imagine anything that Professor Hill could, could, could think to gain as a, as a legal academician by coming forward. I think her, her career has frankly probably suffered as a result of her coming forward. I, don't th- I think that she had a very bright career. I think that if someone had asked me a few weeks ago, I would say that I could imagine Professor Hill coming before this committee in a very different capacity as a judicial nominee herself. I think her opportunities for that now have, uh, have been destroyed. I think she paid a big price for her conscience. President Biden has said that if he does have the opportunity to nominate a Supreme Court justice, it's his intention to nominate a black woman. So I asked Anita Hill if she would accept a nomination to the Supreme Court if one were offered. Well, the clock is ticking on that. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I would consider that. But I would also consider that there are so many young scholars and judges who can come in with new ideas and new thinking about the law. I think that we, we want that new energy. I try to keep up with the, the new thinking, uh, but I, I recognize that there are, we want somebody who is gonna be on that court for a long time uh, and who can bring a passion uh, for social justice and equality to the position for decades. So yes, of course, you have to do what you can to to stand by the things that you say you believe in. But in standing by the things that I believe in, I I would also like the president to consider some of the many young activists and and scholars and, and, and young judges who are out there who can serve in in just incredibly uh, powerful ways. Professor Anita Hill, thank you so much for your courage, for your writing. Um, I will tell listeners there is some humor in this book as well. Please, please be sure to read the new book, Believing Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. Professor Hill, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Hope and humor. Yes, (laughs) it's there. It's there. Okay, y'all, thanks for being with us. And thank you to Professor Anita Hill, along with all of our guests that had questions and comments for her. Now, if you love this podcast, tell your friends and make sure that they subscribe via Apple Podcasts or just grab it at thetakeaway.org. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.